Hello and welcome to another episode of the ATSA podcast, Brace Yourself. My name is Bridget and I'm a first year dental student at the University of Western Australia. Today we are joined by Dr. Omar Ikram, an endodontist from New South Wales. We are proud to have our esteemed guest back on the show, so be sure to check out the previous episode with Dr. Omar if you haven't already. Today we'll be talking about endodontics and the work and lifestyle it entails, as well as Endoprep, which is an app Dr. Omar has developed. So welcome back. Um, tell us how things have been since the last episode. Oh, there's been so much happening since the last time we spoke. Uh, I think last time uh, I spoke to you guys, uh, it was in the middle of the lockdown or pretty much like 2021 or so. And, you know, we were having a lot of uh, different lifestyle and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, things have definitely changed now. We've had an increase in patience and uh, increase in travel and all the changes that are happening in the world. But, um, yeah, work goes on in endo. Uh, we keep seeing more patients. We keep getting more exciting cases. And, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a good uh, 2023 so far and hoping for more in 2024. Cool. So can you share your thoughts on work-life balance and maintaining well-being while practicing endodontics? That's a really good question. So a few years ago during the pandemic, I did a lot of reading and listening to, to audio books on this subject, and it, it quickly became apparent to me that most dentists don't uh, think of the work-life balance that they, ha- that they can have in, in dentistry. We all, we all start with this concept that we're going to have a good work-life balance and then somewhere along the line between getting uh, through the exams at dental school and all the difficult things that we do and the stress that we have at dental school and then coming out the other end and needing to work hard to gain experience, we get lost in this whole, I must work hard. And one of the interesting things I've heard before said about dentistry is that we talk to our patients and try and tell them that they should be doing things before a problem occurs but we are poor at taking this advice for ourselves. Uh, we we work, 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 and then when we are symptomatic or in other words, the burnout starts to happen or stress starts to happen, then we do something about it. We should do something well before this happens. So what I do um, with my schedule is I schedule in holidays. Um, they're all in the book before um, years, years underway. Uh, conferences, um, p- possible breaks in the year where I'm going to be doing teaching courses, uh, things like this. So not all of my time away from the dental practice is is holiday and sitting around and, and hanging out with my family. It's it's also um, it's also teaching and conferences like and 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 all those those aren't really break breaks. They are a break from the the surgery. And and this is the one thing that I have enjoyed um, being a specialist uh, for is the ability to teach other people, and I and I really enjoy this and the socialize socializing and the uh, social aspect of this. Um, at the moment, I'm I'm running a few courses in Sydney, and there are a few um, coming up. Uh, there's one 24th of November. We also have maybe a basic beginners course for dental students and dentists uh, coming up. I think that's going to be a two-day course, August the 9th and 10th, and then there's one. Uh, for calcified canals, which is kind of a more advanced kind of course in October next year. So that kind of thing 
I, I've already got that in the diary for next year. And as, as you can hear, the dates are, apart from the November one, which is coming up in Sydney, but that's been in the cards for a year, that they are all scheduled well before the year starts. There is no spontaneous holidays. They are all planned. Um, so this is a good thing. Uh, one of the things also that I have learned is that you have to make these holidays approximately 10 to 12 weeks um, from the previous holiday. Uh, if you look at the school calendar, if you know if anyone's a parent out there and they look at the school calendar, they'll see the terms are arranged in 10-week holiday, 10-week uh, terms, um, and there's a reason for this. Um, you get to the 12 weeks. When I worked in National Health Service in, in the UK, um, I didn't have anything uh, to drag me away from the dental practice. Uh, I would take holidays when I felt like I was, you know, under under a lot of stress, and I was seeing 19 to 20 patients a day, and of course that would be about um, 10 to 12 weeks, and I would be like, I need to get get out of here, and 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 that's pretty much the way that the school term is scheduled as well. Uh, so if you follow that, you don't have to take holidays during the school holidays, obviously, but that's just an indication of how that works. Uh, parents tend to take holidays during that time, and with their with their family. And um, it's a good idea for anyone who's who's a dentist to look at that sort of time period um, before they take a break. I mean, it depends how much work you're doing, but if you're working five days a week and you're quite busy, and when I say busy, I'm not talking about busy for someone like me. I mean, busy for that person. That's a really important thing as well to note that busy for everyone is a very different kind of tempo. Like my idea of busy is doing like four RCTs start to finish in a day. Um, but, you know, when I was a new grad, that would have taken me four or five hours per patient. Um, now it's down to an hour and a half, um, an hour and 45 minutes for some cases. Um, so, you know, you times that by four, that's a, that's a working day. Um, so that's a busy day for me. And, and, but, you know, for, for, for a new graduate dentist, maybe seeing five patients is busy. It depends what you're doing, of course. If you're doing, you know, two or three crown preps and an endo, that, that's an extremely busy day, five patients. So, so it's relative. And that's the, and that leads me on to the next point is that stress is relative. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about it, there's, there's many, 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 many people out there who would be scared if they picked up a drill and started to drill somebody's tooth. And we do it at dental school and it's pretty scary. Everyone can remember that first patient. Everyone can remember that first extraction. That's a very stressful time. And that's what, uh, would happen if a member of the public picked up a drill and started doing dentistry. But we are um, trained and we have experience. So for us, dentistry is tough, but it's not as tough as it would be if you were starting out. And likewise, other people's jobs, you know, um, lawyers, doctors, you know, pharmacists, uh, finance people, their job are stressful as, as, as much as our job is stressful. Theirs are also. Um, so it's all relative because the the chemicals that are released when you have stress are not different. Whether you're a dentist or a, or a doctor or a brain surgeon or a lawyer, they are exactly the same. So if you have busyness and high um, a high workload, you need to factor in those holidays. Yeah, it sounds like um, having variety in your occupation, like like you mentioned, teaching on top of your like working clinically as well as planning these holidays in advance so you're like intentionally taking that break were pretty much strategies for you to maintain that work-life balance I was watching your um I was listening into your other podcast episode with us and you mentioned how difficult the um RACDS fellowship exams were did you have any strategies to coping with like the amount of studying and work you had to put into during that time or 
you kind of had to just pull through and just keep studying and working and those are actually quite good questions because I did the primary fellowship exams because I wasn't doing a lot of work in my clinical work in my first year in Christchurch, New Zealand. So what happened was uh, I was I was in a, in a private practice which wasn't busy enough for one for two dentists. It was busy for the boss, and you know there was a bit of um, work left over for me. So the options for me were to either leave the country, get a new job, or do something different uh, or just stay and then do the fellowship exam so that's how I found time for those exams uh, so I wasn't working full-time I was working I was working every day but it was only like a couple of patients two or three in it you know in a day so I might have been seeing somewhere between seven and, and uh, 20 patients a week um, so you can easily manage the time the, 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 then the, then, the, then it comes down to the the planning of your diary and things like that that's that's an interesting that's another interesting discussion to have i won't go too much about this but like it's funny how all of a sudden the end, end of the day appointments will be full but the middle of the day aren't and then whether you decide to flag that and just do the study in the afternoon and just move the patient or whatever that that's actually quite an interesting discussion to have with many dentists. I find dentists again are poor at this. Like for example, I'll do a I'll do a CPD evening. I've just done one recently, and we had seventy people turn up. And I and a few of the dentists wrote back to me on a couple of days before and said, "Look, I worked that day on the evening." And I'm like, "But you just cancel the patients or just block the day. It's a free CPD evening. Just make the effort. It's going. It, we're not in. We're not saving lives here. Um, you can just block off." A couple of hours and come to an event which is free and it's and it's fun that's the other thing is we're not very good at seeing the fun and things in dentistry it's fun to come and see someone talk meet people have some food socialize maybe talk a bit of minor bit of dentistry maybe not talk about dentistry at all and sit there and listen to something that you can understand and and i try to make the lectures fun especially the evening ones because obviously we don't fall asleep otherwise um so it, it we have to see the fun in our job as well, not just the work. Uh, the work is always going to be there, um, but we become so tunnel vision about this. And I understand this. People are so tunnel vision because we are, you know, indoctrinated in dental school about you know, our profession and how serious it is. And it's really great to have that attitude. But at the same time, it can be fun. And if we see the fun in it, we will get more uh, stress relief. We will get less burnout. And uh, like you mentioned, um, work-life balance is, is part of that and the scheduling of these events is to um, focus on something that I really like in dentistry which is the social aspect and the and the meeting dentists and teaching and 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 to me there's to me there's a lot there's not very many of us around but there's a few dentists out there I see I see them a, a bit on the social media that really love to teach and socialize and it's it's great to see that there are still dentists out there doing that because um, it doesn't feel like work. Like I've got a course coming up in Sydney, 24th of November, and we've got uh, three postgraduate students coming from Queensland for the course to help me and another endodontist from far north Queensland. And, and it'll be really fun. Like we'll meet the dentist there. We'll go out afterwards. We'll have chats. We'll all learn from each other. I mean, they'll have different techniques. They've been trained at um, different dental schools originally. And then uh, the, um, the endodontist from from far north Queensland, she was trained in Melbourne, so she'll have different ideas to what I was taught at King's, and, and we'll share ide ideas, and it'll be really fun. It's not a day in the surgery, but it's fun. 
Um, so we can have this in dentistry, but I think I find that we are we are quite poor at that. Um, it, life is what happens outside of the surgery. We have to sometimes remember that that life is what goes on outside of our business of dentistry, if you know what I mean. The business of dentistry is important, yes, and we we do. That's our go-to, uh, a default, because we are trained, we are indoctrinated to being dentists in the in the in the motto of saving teeth and 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 helping people and being a health professional but at the end of the day life is also outside of the surgery and also can be stuff around treating patients it can be lectures it can be cbd it can be a holiday as well obviously but um yeah it's important to realize that we have so much in our job that we can access and it's not just treating patients uh that's our default but there's so much to it uh and people who and i meet so many dentists all the time who are disheartened with dentistry and say clinical dentistry wasn't for me and I sometimes think to myself but you don't have to do clinical dentistry to be a dentist you can do research you can do teaching you can do um, all sorts of things you can you can um, own multiple practices and practice very little uh, be a business person some of my friends are business people essentially they do a bit of dentistry but not do, don't do much um, and and that's still being a dentist so it's yeah, treating patients is is what we describe as the the profitable part of being a dentist. But if you don't like it, then you don't have to do it. In the same way that if you did a law degree, you know you can write and you can be in finance and you can you can do all these things. You don't have to be a lawyer who's <laughs> going to court and things like that. It, there are more strings to being a dentist than anyone realizes, and I and I'm only realizing that now in my job, uh, having been you know teaching this year in London and Taiwan and uh, in sydney uh, and it's been really fun so there are there are more things to come in the future hopefully for the for these events but uh, we have to realize that there's more to it than, than just teaching pa- uh, treating patients well thanks for such a detailed response i think i kind of yeah. relate to it as a even just a first year student we're always so stressed about the next exam or assessment we forget to like actually have fun in dental school and actually experience you know the, and learn and you know actually just have fun and Remember, there's a life outside of dentistry as well. And um, so, yeah, moving on to the next topic, um, which is all on endodontics. So please describe a typical day in your practice as an endodontist. Well, I I tend to see about, I'd probably see three to four treatments per day, um, maybe maybe three, um, and a couple of consults. Uh, Generally, the cases that I would get would be molar endo, um, generally it's retreatments or you know, it can be first time treatments, but it's not generally, we don't get many anterior teeth referred. Um, it's generally molar endo all the time. And, um, and we, we don't really see many emergency patients because they are usually seen by their general dentist first. So that's something that we, we don't see a lot of, but we can sometimes if we have space see emergency patients. And obviously if we have patients who have had discomfort, uh, or need a review or whatever we can we can often see them uh, we some we sometimes um, see a couple of consults but basically the way I operate the practices I will consult every patient um, triage them and work out if their problem is urgent not urgent um, you know the prognosis uh, restorative prognosis endodontic prognosis all, all the all the um, nitty-gritty of the the case and it takes some um, quite a lot of planning to be able to do this because, you know, some patients are 
not needing the tooth and they want to travel and they want to like they're leaving tomorrow <laughs> and other patients have like you know a lot of time and some people have a sinus tract which is draining and they're not going to get much discomfort and there's all these like things you've got to consider when you look at patients um, so that's the part of the triaging process and letting them know and sometimes patients go oh wow i'm so happy that you know i'm just not an urgent thing and i can just book this when i have a break and you know sometimes if they're if they're a teacher and they want to come on the school holidays and there's things like this you know they don't have to take time out of their job um in other in other situations they they need more urgent care and, and because they may be traveling and they need to do something earlier and then we can work that out as well um so that that's what i'll do and then i'll book most of the time i book single visit cases now um because i can get all the treatment done we have great staff we have um good tools now for for, for using to assess cases before we start you know we can use our experience we can use um, cbct and we can use a microscope so um i'm usually able to, to to work out whether the case is is going to be successful without having to actually open up the tooth and look at it um you know obviously there's always there's always uh, limitations to our tools we use but they're getting less and less i mean i was brought up in the days without microscopes and and cbct so <laughs> the two main tools that we find really useful, which are CBCT and microscope, weren't even used when I graduated by any general dentists. And basically now we have this way of amazing way of just, just telling another, adding that extra layer of like certainty that what we're doing is, is the right thing. And so um, this is why I do a lot more single visit cases. And I just feel that if you're on a roll, why not finish the case? Because um, the patient obviously doesn't want to come back from multiple visits so they can help it. I still do multiple visits, but um, for some cases, but that would be the minority. Oh, I see. So, how and when would you collaborate with other dental specialists? Yeah, good one. Um, this this question um is a good one for our practice because we have pediatrics, um, MaxFax surgery, and um, perio, and uh, yeah. So, so pediatrics is quite a common one. I mean, patient has trauma and um. Uh, pedi- some of the pediatric dentists don't do uh, much endo on um, open apex teeth, so I would tend to treat them. Um, and sometimes the patient needs general anaesthetic because they are um, not going to sit in the chair and for the appointment. Uh, you know, it's, it's difficult for most. Uh, I always say very very young patients and very elderly patients have trouble sitting for long periods of time in the chair, so uh, an hour and a half would be a normal case um anterior upper anterior and um some patients have to be sitting still for that in fact most kids will only give you an hour if they're even even a kid around 10 11 will only give you an hour to do a treatment so you gotta be pretty quick in fact i had a a really good well-behaved kid in the chair the other day and got to an hour and he said how much longer and i thought okay so he's still got the limitations there he was 12 actually but um you know most kids won't tolerate more than an hour they wonder what's going on um, so you do have to do things pretty quickly. Um, so that would be a common collaboration. Um, sometimes if I'm treating dens of vaginitis or dens and vaginitis cases, the same uh, pediatrics is a common one. Um, Maxfax would be some of the cases where uh, they're booked in for extraction and the Maxfax surgeon believes that they can have the tooth saved. And, that's, and he's quite good at doing that. Um, so I get some referrals off that. Uh, sometimes um, if you're looking at large cysts uh, for removal and there's going to be damage to the nerve or the tooth during the cyst removal, you have to uh, treat the tooth before the um, cyst removal or, 
sometimes you would do it after but, but there's a collaboration there it, obviously if they're um, uh, enucleating a cyst and, and they um, damage the um, apical foramen they're going to the patient's going to need an endo of that tooth so that's another one uh, and perio is obviously perioendo cases um, per perioendo cases can be interesting um, I find the ones that work work best are the ones that have um, obviously endo is a primary disease um, because if you do the endo that will heal the perio um, primary perio secondary endo is always a tough one because the, generally the, the patient needs a root amputation or something like that and, and with the um, advent of implants this has become a little bit less popular but that is a possible uh, collaboration the last one that I collaborated for which was an interesting one was for the perio was a patient with an upper first molar and they had external cervical root resorption of the MB root and there was a perforation of that resorption um, into the um, mesobuccal root canal. So, so when I treated the case, I just treated uh, the distobuccal and the palatal roots and then the um, root amputation was done by the, by the periodontist. And they came up to me the other day and said, that worked really well. I said, yeah, because the root that was causing the problems was the MB and, and it didn't have a crack in it or anything like that. So that was a good collaboration there, uh, especially if you can um, avoid the implant. Again, implants are, are something that's, that patients some often believe is such a good thing. But in reality, um, I was just talking to a patient today. They were about 50 years old, 53, 54, something like this. And, I, and, and actually, it was, yes, it was yesterday. They, they said, why wouldn't I just take the tooth out and have an implant, uh, an upper premolar? And I said, you could do this, but like, of course, implants, 15 to 20 year survival rate is okay. Um, but what after that? And you'll be 70. Uh, so you'll be looking for something else in, at 70. Uh, most people, obviously, in Australia, the, the, the average life expectancy is around 85 for a woman. So, you know, if you can string the tooth out for another 10 years or so, we're doing endo, then that's heaps better for the patient. And they can have the implant after that. You're one step away from that implant. Um, that's, I do a lot of this now, a lot of um, talking to patients about this sort of thing because, because most patients don't understand that implants don't last forever. And even if they do last forever, the aesthetics is often poor in the last few years. Uh, the reason for that, of course, is there's no PDL, so you don't get a flexing, flexing of the implant. There's no um, tensile forces in the, in the periodontal ligament. Uh, it doesn't maintain the bones. The bone just drops away slowly over time, and then if the period patient's not got good oral hygiene then of course they're definitely going to get problems and screw um, threads will start to show and then the biofilms start living in the threads of the implant and then it's it's replacement time at some point so um, yeah that's an, it's another another important thing for patients to realize that even if the implant is there for 15 years you might have three or four years where it looks really bad is that something you want to go through um, so this is something this is another reason for keeping teeth so keeping teeth is a is a good thing, but also understand the limitations of keeping teeth. Uh, and some patients, you know, if they're very elderly and they don't have a tooth opposing, <laughs> don't keep the tooth. You know, I, I do all that on the consultation. So, so these are like the little collaborations I do in patients. And it's kind of fun to do multidisciplinary cases. Um, ortho, I've done some cases, um, you know, devitalized teeth uh, or external resorption cases uh, quite commonly come up. Um, but, you know, these things can happen when you're moving teeth around. Uh, it's like a slow trauma orthodontics. So, um, yeah, we do lots of multidisciplinary cases.
Yeah, sounds like he gets to work with quite a few dental specialisations. So the next question is, what do you find most rewarding about practising endodontics? Are there any challenges you face regularly? Yeah, so the the thing I find most rewarding now is actually just the look on the patient's face when you've finished. And um, what I'm finding is with more and more experience and more and more tools, they're more and more impressed with the whole experience. I think my, my experience is getting obviously better as I get more experience, um, my, my skills. Um, the tools we have now are like a level or two better than when I, you know, even when I came to Australia in 2010, we have so much better um, tools than we used to. I can, I can show pictures of cracks on the screen. I can show them the canal that wasn't found previously and say, look, look, look how small that is. It's pretty difficult, right? There's no way you can find that, you know, without this microscope and, and then all these things. CBCT adds another dimension showing cracks as well. And also, um, looking at the, the canal anatomy and the, you know, I can, I can literally show a patient. This is what the, you know, this is what your tooth will look like when I'm treating it. And they're, and they're really impressed. So just to be able to see the look on their face and see that they're so impressed by the whole experience and then give them a the good experience um, in the chair, uh, get the treatment done um, pretty efficiently is like really one of the most fun parts of the day. Uh, the other thing, the other thing you mentioned is uh, challenges I face regularly. Um, well, we get those, um, the challenges are the usually with the patient or the tooth, but not both. Um, you'd be unlucky to get a challenging patient with a challenging tooth, but they do happen. That's the minority of cases. Um, yeah, so so challenging anatomy is always tough. Um, I had a three-rooted upper premolar today, which was a little bit tough, but CBCT scan showed where it was, and you just follow that, and you're good. Um, the the other one that often comes up is fractured instruments can be a real pain um, because. Um, quite often the patient's obviously extremely worried about the fractured instrument and um, the dentist is often worried and it's a lot of stress revolving around something that interestingly enough doesn't affect the prognosis that much um, but they are a challenge um, because the patients are keen for removal of the instrument always for some reason they <laughs> focused on this removing instrument and and even if you tell them their tooth will be destroyed by removing the instrument they seem obsessed with doing that um, and again, CBCT is wonderful for this because you can look at the canal anatomy and go, look, it doesn't really matter if I remove it. They join, uh, you know, MB and ML join or uh, the canals join or, or they don't join and we need to bypass it. Things like this are really helpful to know just before you even start uh, and tell the patient, look, they, this shows that they, they join up and, and will be good even if we don't really get around the instrument. So then we'll save your dentine and we won't go chasing that file because the canals join up. Um, so that's a really good tool to be able to use and just show the patient like exactly what's going on. Uh, so that they're a difficult case, um, but we get sent lots of patients who have fractured instruments and usually they go pretty well. Mm, I see. So the next question is about the three different countries you've practiced in. So what did you love or dislike about working in each country? I can imagine practicing in the UK would be really different since they're under the NHS. Yeah, so... New Zealand and Australia are fairly similar from my experience. I mean, I worked as a general dentist in New Zealand, not as a specialist. Uh, New Zealand um, is, you know, very private practice orientated, uh, same as Australia. Um, the the um, number of patients is obviously a lot less because there's less people. Uh, there's quite a number of dentists, obviously, in New Zealand. Um, 
the, the rural opportunities in New Zealand are quite um, like they are quite close to cities uh, compared to Australia where where it's big distances. I guess that's the major difference. Um, I really um, I really enjoyed the fact that I was able to do my fellowship exams when I worked in New Zealand. <laughs> that was a good thing. I mean, I could say like I wasn't seeing so many patients and things like this, but actually you got to look on the bright side of these things and say, hey, I came away that year with um, the primary fellowship exams. And then what happened later on was when I was in, I was living in England and I was like, I was looking for something to do one of the years, and I, just cranking it out, cranking out the cases in the NHS as a general dentist. And I was just thinking, what should I do this year? And then uh, I thought maybe I should just do the, the, the second exam of that. That fellowship and give myself a bit get get back and get some back some enthusiasm in dentistry because you know again when you're sitting in the surgery and working a lot you just lose a bit of that enthusiasm you lose a bit of that stuff that I was talking about at the start and uh, by going you know doing a course uh, where you learn about dentistry um, you look at papers uh, you know just, just the, the fellowship exams are finally the primary exams are basic sciences and they're like basically a summary of everything you want to know um, but never had the time to know in, in dental school. And then the leap from that to the final exams, the final exams is like where you actually go back to the books and go, how much radiation is the patient getting from a radiograph? And it was the updated knowledge on that, not, not what I learned at dental school all those years ago, because usually you do this three or four years after you've graduated. You have to have experience to these exams. Um, so, so I found that was actually kind of one of the good things about when I was in private practice in Christchurch, I was able to do those exams. Uh, UK is very different to Australia and New Zealand. When I was there, and it's changing rapidly now, but um, in the UK they have a national health service, which is basically means that you, um, if you're in London, uh, which is where I was, uh, there was a lot of national health service practices that were called mixed practices, meaning the patient can come and get a checkup and a clean and radiographs on the NHS. Um, they stay registered as an NHS patient. And then if you wanted to do a private crown, you can just say, well, the crown is you know, this cost. I mean, you have a set private fee, whatever your practice charges like you do in Australia. And so they add incremental treatments on to their, to their treatments so that the NHS sets the fees for the, for the, um, Exam and bite wings and scale and polish, but the uh, but the crown is whatever your your um, practice sets their private fees at. Uh, so that so that's very different because you spend a lot of time trying to work out the best treatment plan and and trying to give the patient the best of both worlds, and it's a bit tricky. Um, becomes a bit of a skill set. I mean, it's changed a lot since then so i won't go on about it too much because it's it's different it's a different system now and I, i've worked in that system the new system for about only a only a, a year or so um but basically um, that's how it worked but the, the 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 long and the short of it is that in the national health service uh you saw heaps of patients um because and there was lots of people in london obviously and um, and lots of treatment lots of treatment to do that was the other thing is different to maybe private practice in Australia and New Zealand where you're you've got a socioeconomic group of patients who can afford private dentistry they are a bit more educated than lower socioeconomic people in general they are, they have more um, interest in health and you know there's that that sort of thing we talk about all the time the people who need dentistry are the ones who can't afford it and things like that and in England England you didn't have that um, split because the National Health Service catered for people who were um, 
unemployed and people who weren't able to to pay for dentistry uh, they got free dentistry and then obviously it catered for for everyone uh, like that which was kind of kind of good in a way i mean like i I, again i like to look at the bright side of things and say look i mean you can say what you like about the national health service and you know it's underfunded and all those things that people talk about but at the end of the day seeing patients and being able to help them is a good thing and you learn from that you don't learn from sitting there and having no one in your books (laughs) you don't don't learn from not doing dentistry um you know it might be a a low-cost crown that you're doing you know on a national health service but at least you're doing the crown and making sure it fits and making sure the occlusion's right and making sure the patient's happy and and doing that is doing the work that sets the the um, boundaries or the or sets the bar for your for your future and it's a really important again to remember that we have to start slowly in dentistry and then build there's no way you're going to come out and everyone's going to let you do crowns on them and, and, and you're all going to fit and they're you know you're going to walk home and go i'm a great dentist and if you do, if you are doing that um in the unlikely event that you are doing that you're probably doing something wrong um or there's two things you're probably doing something wrong or something bad is going to happen and you're going to face a lot of problems soon because if you didn't face them at the start you'll face them worse in the future because you haven't gone through the process of of learning everyone needs to do that process everyone needs to start slow get those disappointments and then come back from the disappointments and coming back from the disappointments is a learning not walking away so when you have those difficulties going and, and and confronting those difficulties is actually the way you learn it's a funny thing it's like we want to stay stay away from our weaknesses or our things that we don't like but that's actually the only way we can learn i mean we didn't learn maths by walking around and not looking at our books we sat down and, and learned the books but somehow as adults we feel that we just can get away from it all and and that's okay to live life like that but it's really not and the same for dentistry is we need to confront the challenges think about what went wrong or didn't go wrong or or what went right and how it went right um and then we need to reassess and and go from there and it's uncomfortable sometimes to appraise yourself and and you and look at yourself in the mirror and say i perforated and how can i avoid that Um, but we all have to do that to get better and if we don't do that we're not going to get better thanks for sharing us that insight so we'll move on to talking about endoprep. So what motivated you or inspired you to create endoprep and what was the process and challenges of developing the app with Professor William Haar? So William Haar and I talked about endoprep app in probably 2017. Uh, it was a brief discussion of he was working with a, um, a software or, web, or app developer developing he's developed a number of apps so um, he just wanted me to make an app for the practice um that i was kind of um doing a lot of things in 2017 and i never really got on to doing anything with that and then what happened was he was developing the aae um, case assessment app which i highly recommend everyone looks at because it's a good way of looking at an endo case and going you know and it's using the aa criteria the american criteria to assess whether a case is difficult or easy uh, and you know being able to show the patient your tooth is difficult here are the criteria um so so he he was going to involve me in this and then he didn't need to because it was a basic app uh, they were looking to extend it in some ways um but but the um, aa decided to do a more basic app 
and I, I didn't get to um, be involved in that. So then I then I started thinking to myself, well, I had other ideas uh, about preparing canals and size of um, preparations and curvature, and because we all have our way of judging curvature and what we would use, what systems we use, and all this sort of stuff. So so I approached him and said, well, what about we make a an app about preparing the root canal, and that's where that idea of endo prep app came from. Um, so then he actually extended that and said, why don't we add a whole lot of other things like the measuring tool and then the um, study guide. He, he was heavily involved in, in the creation of these things. I came up with the idea of the NB2 guide. So as soon as we started thinking outside of preparing the root canal and more towards a hub where people could get off social media and say, hey, you know, let's not see what the dentist down the road recommends, but actually what articles <laughs> recommend. Um, we, we try to link the app to to um, articles that have been published. We, we basically try to try to make a sort of, I mean, it's not really AI, but it's a kind of, it's an attempt at some sort of AI of like, if you are um, you know, looking for the MB2, it's probably here if you were using the Coolard and Peters research paper. You know that that's the idea. It's not just me guessing. There is a um, uh, there is a uh, an algorithm that dentists use for finding MB2, and and that's what you can use in the guide. Um, so so essentially, that's what it is. It's trying to get people some idea of an evidence base to practice endodontics, and the um, complications part of the uh, app is also fairly useful for dentists. Um, you know, we get so many questions every day. You know, if I perforate, what do I do? It's like, well, it's all on the Endoprep app. I mean, and the papers are there too. Again, this isn't just made up. It's There are articles. There are evidence-based uh, ways of dealing with a perforation and, and working out if you perforated and things like that. So that's really what the Endoprep app is designed for. Uh, it's a free app, and you can download this for free. There is like some add-ons, but they are only a dollar. So. Um, this is a side question. So you say that you do add journal articles. So would you, how often would you update the app so that the literature is up to date as well? Well, we aim to do that once a year. Oh, okay. Um, but what you tend to find is with Endo, um, there is not big changes there's not big quick changes in, in endodontics yeah because because what we're looking at is is a basic kind of um we're looking at the level of a of a new dentist or a student here for the for mm. the um study guide the I idea isn't um to give people like uh, articles that sort of confuse them or extend them too much the the idea of the study guide is actually to get uh students like yourself to you know you might be given an essay on endodontics go to the app and don't look at pubmed straight away mm. and find the articles that are on the endoprep app um, and you'll see the ones that are um, that are relevant to that question and then you can go from there because the ones that we've added will be the ones that are most quoted mm. uh, and often they aren't the most recent articles like for example, there's a there's a paper by Ning et al. 2011, which is a very popular one for you know outcome. Um, it's a big study. It went on for um, many years, and there's lots of data. 
so it's kind of like a really um, seminal paper but it was you know 2011 it's a long time ago now um, so these are kind of um, uh, classic almost uh, new classics i guess <laughs> of endodontics so so we, we try to keep those papers um, updated but like i said we're not trying to mm. add articles that are very very recent because there's there's slow changes in endodontics at the moment we haven't had a massive shift in uh, treatment for for a long time um, i mean the latest latest uh, topic is irrigation and minimal preparation so and laser activation those are the three big topics and and the re and in reality um, these aren't common topics in student exams um, you know you, we're talking at the level of biofilms and you know, irrigation chemicals and things like that um, more than like you know minimal preparation sizes and things like that as a student you won't be learning too much about minimally invasive endodontics um, <laughs> you were just trying to get the. You were just trying to be do the endo correctly rather than worrying yeah. about whether it's minimal or not. And in fact, actually, mo many of the students that I know are actually fairly minimal endodontists because they mostly use hand files. <laughs> That's pretty minimal. Yeah. So, what was some of the feedback you received after releasing the app? Yeah, generally pretty good. I mean, there's been about thirty thousand de dentists or. Um, people in the world, should I say, who have downloaded it, um, and generally the feedback's fairly good. Uh, we have um, got a lot of uh, mileage out of our our app, and and we're talking about it on the AAE uh, podcast called Endo Voices. That's one thing I I would recommend is Endo Voices podcast. It's a really great thing that AAE are doing. They're doing a really good podcast. Marcus Johnson is the host. He's a really good host. And they bring up um, lots of different topics about microscopes and minimally invasive endo, and you know, there's a whole lot restorative and endo. Um, there's one about burnout. There's one about the one I one I quite enjoyed, um, which keeps coming up, is is dealing with success and failure. There was a there was a guy on that who's a music artist. He's not an endodontist, but he's. The story was that he he was a music artist and always wanted to make this big hit, and that you know his life would be complete if he could make one major hit, and he did make a major hit, and he didn't know what to do with his life after that. <laughs> and uh, the story was that he was doing a concert um, for an event, and he needed root canal treatment the, of the morning of the concert. The TV crew were all going to be on him, and he was going to be in pain with his. This tooth, so he had to get an endodontist in a, in New York to do his treatment in the morning on the Sunday, I think it was, and then on, so they opened the surgery for him, did the treatment, and then he did the did the concert Sunday night or something like this. So that's why he got uh, that gig doing in the podcast. But that's actually quite a good one, all about you know we expect something from our career, and when we reach the goal, like what do we do then? Uh, we do this in dentistry a lot as well. Like, uh, if you become a dentist, we, we see, I see this a lot on social media. You know, as is my last clinic of all time. <laughs> it's not, it won't be your last clinic if you do specialist training. You know, it's that we, we do have other things that will come up. This is my last sim lab of all time and all that. It's not, it's not your last sim lab. You have that with specialist training too. And you might even come to one of my courses and we'll do some sim lab stuff in the, in the ADA in New South Wales. So, so, so we, we all like these sort of things, but actually we have to realize that that's just part of the journey and that's the sim lab was probably fun, you know, <laughs> the, the treating of patients is hard and, and that becomes fun as well. 
Uh, we have to embrace all these little things along the way. But yeah, I, I recommend that podcast. Um, so definitely go and uh, take a look sometime. Thanks for sharing um, some of the stuff on endocrabs. So just moving on to the last few questions. How do you manage patient communication and, edu- and educate them about the importance of endodontic treatment? Well, this is done a lot through social media, and obviously if they're a member of my page, they can read about this. Um, the other thing I do at the consult is I'm quite, um, I'm quite attuned, or should I say, experienced in looking at occlusion and, and working out restorative plans for or guesstimates of the restorative plan for the future of the patient. Because I did a lot of general dentistry, I was in practice for around nine years, basically, um, while I was specialising and obviously before specialising. So like seven and a half years of being a general dentist before I even got into the course. And then we have one and a half to two years of doing general dentistry uh, part-time in, in the UK and then it was a four-year it was a four-year degree but part-time so so what I do is I, I will look at the patient and say look for, for example here's a really good example the patient came in last week uh, they had pul- uh, pulpal disease uh, periapical disease of 3-7 I believe it was and they'd been missing the 3-6 for years and and we all know what a lone standing 3-7 is going to have it's going to have a crack somewhere through that um, so this patient had a crack at the distal, uh, as you'd expect. Uh, the t- tooth was immediately tilted because the six was missing. And the patient said, I'm thinking about just having the tooth out. And I said, okay, if you lose the six and the, uh, to lose the seven and you have lost the six, you have no more replacements for the six uh, apart from an implant. And what happens if an implant isn't successful or, or you can't have that? Whereas if you keep the seven, which is the one that I want to treat today, then you'll have an option of a bridge or let's just say you can't replace the six with an implant. You could have a partial denture which is now not got a free end saddle. You'll have a clasping unit around the seven and that will stabilize the denture on that side. Um, so it opens up way more benefits if you keep this tooth. And the patient went ahead with the, keeping the tooth and um, I believe everything's gone well. So. So we've given the patient a second chance and another restorative plan. So it's just worth saying to your patients, instead of, like, I hear this a lot, oh, patients just want the extraction. It's like, the patient wants extraction because they're in pain and it's going to cost a lot to save the tooth. But do they know the value of saving the tooth? And as I said, sometimes I say there's no value in saving the tooth. I say that quite a lot. An unopposed upper molar, a second molar in a, in a patient who's relatively elderly and doesn't need it, take the tooth out. Um, or they have minimal contact. Again, possible to take the tooth out. I mean, you, losing a tooth is not is not um, the worst thing in the world for some patients. So it's okay to do that for some patients, but obviously the majority I'm saving. But um, it's really important to realise that they need to be educated by us and you guys that saving the tooth in their situation has benefits. So that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the important thing is saving the tooth in their situation. Um, sometimes saving the tooth in their situation isn't worth it. Um, you know, because as I said, some patients don't need the tooth and um, you know, their situation is, is different. But, but, um, but if a patient says they just want the tooth out, it's very important to, to remind them of you know, the benefits of keeping the tooth if there, if there are benefits. And that's where experience in restorative dentistry really comes in handy because if you have done a decent amount of restorative dentistry, you quickly pick up on this. Um, I'm quite often saying to patients with cracked teeth, 
So you've had, you know, one tooth out on the other side of the crack, and now you're talking about having the other side out of the crack. You know, you're just going to load the tooth that's left, and then etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, maybe keep the tooth uh, with an endo, maybe the crown, and then maybe replace the tooth that you've broken has been extracted, and maybe then a splint. Um, and maybe think about doing yoga and meditating and relaxing and not stressing yourself out so much. You know, these things are actually really important. Tell the patient that stress plays a role in clenching, grinding, and all those things. Stress is damaging their teeth. Stress is costing them dentistry bills. It's it's making their teeth unsavable. It's really important. Um, so again, educating a patient is so important. We should educate our patients, not just be um, doing what they, they say because they feel like having the tooth out, because, but they don't understand what they're doing. So it's important to do that. And, you know, patients can have their tooth out if they really want to, but it's important to relay that message from your experience. Uh, as I said, sometimes that means that the tooth is going to be extracted and it's fine. The patient says that and say, well, that, that, that makes sense in your situation. But sometimes, a lot of the time, they don't understand there's other options or they're, they're removing other options. The classic one for me is the, the, the trauma cases that I get referred. You know, trauma case, um, patients maybe in their teens, 20s, I had a patient recently with a, with a serious trauma. They were in their early 20s. And it's like you cannot have implants in your early 20s. If you have teeth out, you are actually limiting the restorative um, options for the later in life. Some teeth may be resorbed, go, fracture in the future. Um, but if you keep as many teeth as possible, you have more options. And if you lose all those teeth, you have less options. Uh, and the patient's 20-something. And you've got another 60-odd years to live if you live to the average age. And, and you need to keep those restorative options open. Uh, so removing teeth is not something that I recommend in dental trauma a lot um, because you can hold on to teeth and juggle them along quite nicely for a long time quite often. Mm, I see. Yeah, it sounds like patient education is definitely really important. I feel like it's something that we need to learn a lot more in dental school because sometimes we're just so focused on, like, the practical skill. Mm. I definitely think communication is, like, really important, especially when we start, you know, we're graduating with full-on dentists and we have our own patients. But, yeah, so the final question is, what are your hopes for the future of endodontics and how do you see it evolving in the coming years? Well, the endodontics is going to be um, is going to be a, a massive um, growth area um, in, for the future because we know that implants aren't aren't a panacea for for treatment. We know that they have a, um, a longevity which is comparable to retreated teeth, but we we know we're all living longer as well. Uh, that's the other thing: is patients live longer, so we need to keep teeth longer. Um, not being able to chew is not a good thing. Um, so, so I see that endodontics in the future is going to become more minimalistic. I think there's going to be more focus on retaining more structure. Um, there's going to be, in the future, I would say, if I'm just going to have a punt at it, there's going to be more restorative materials to prevent endo disease. Um, you know, MTA-based kind of things. And that, I think without, I think the big thing, if anyone can do it for the future, is to produce a material which is like MTA or bioceramic, bio but is like a filling material which you can fill the tooth with, like, like a kind of pack it in there and, and, and um, it will wear, um, have good wear properties. 
you know, because because I see so many pulp caps and so many uh, pulp um, pulp exposures and think to myself, if only they'd done a pulpotomy and just put the MTA or biodentine over the pulp and done the restoration, this probably wouldn't be happening. So if we could combine this into a material, then this will prevent endodontics being required or root canal being required. Endodontics could be a pop cap, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, that's basically the, the, the area that I see growing is, is more materials to keep the patient away from needing a root canal treatment. And then again, you are one step away from the tooth being extracted. So that movement further away. At the moment, with minimally invasive endodontics, uh, things are obviously going well. Um, we just have to develop tools to irrigate these small preps, and that's the that seems to be the, the, the um, focus for many companies at the moment is developing tools to activate and then irrigate these tiny preps. Um, but if the person knows what they're doing, we still have very, very good irrigation tips out there now and activation units, so um, they're going pretty well. The other, the other thing to remember with endodontics is that endodontics tends to work very well if you find the canals. Um, we don't, although you know, there is an obsession towards removing bacteria in the root canal, we do have to remember that these bacteria are actually our own bacteria, and we have a good tolerance for them, and so if we remove them, it's a bit like brushing your teeth or flossing. We don't sterilize our mouth, but we don't all have periodontal disease or caries everywhere because we have lowered the level of bacteria, and that's what we're doing in endodontics. So although there's a massive, massive focus on irrigating perfectly, removal of every shred of bacteria from the canal, and that's what we're all aiming for, um, there, is a, there is a good tolerance there. Um, so, um, so, so these devices don't need to be uber, uh, uber um, how would I say, Uber modern and, and slick, they can just be like a really fine irrigation plastic tip like we have now and an activation unit. So we have a lot of these. So the sort of laser activation and things like that. I mean, is it beneficial? I, I don't know. The real factor is, does it retain the tooth longer is the, is the real answer. And that's what we're looking at now in endodontics is healing of apical periodontitis is obviously what we're aiming for in prevention, but like retaining the tooth is the, the gold standard, in my opinion, like if the patients can chew on the tooth and they're asymptomatic and functional, then you've done your job. I mean, a little dark area at the end of the root canal is is not going to be a problem, and you know, it probably heals. Take maybe it takes a long time to heal or whatever. Some patients take longer to heal than others. We know this from research. Um, so, so keeping the tooth is the gold standard. As I said, if we're living longer, we want to keep teeth longer and avoid that implant uh, for longer. Well, those were all the questions for today. Thanks so much, Dr. Omar, for taking the time to be on our podcast and providing insight to your work as an endodontist. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all of those listening. Definitely check out Dr. Omar's Endo Prep app, and you can also follow him on Instagram at Specialist Endo. And we hope you all found today's today's episode um, a really interesting one, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much, Dr. Omar. Thanks a lot for having me. See you soon. No worries, thanks so much.